2015 by the state of Maryland now, and I'm very glad to be able to be back with you. So where were we before Easter? We've been talking about the life of David, learning to live out of God's grace for his glory, and we're returning to that now. So a little catch up of where we've been. We've seen David overcome his enemies and come to dwell in peace. When David preached last, we saw God promise to David that he would establish his kingdom and give him a permanent dynasty, that he would always have an heir on the throne. Now it's time to see how David is going to rule his kingdom. We haven't been able to cover everything in these chapters. We won't be able to cover everything, and we'll be moving on to some of the main plot points next week. But this week, I want to spend some time with one particular relationship, David's relationship with this guy named Mephibosheth. It's fun to say, Mephibosheth, uh, who is the son of Jonathan. And um, you'll notice in your bulletin that I picked a number of texts because this story is kind of Uh, shows up interspersed between some of the other events. So we need to look at a few texts to see the whole story. Um, I'll start in 2 Samuel 4 to get the very beginning of Mephibosheth's story. So 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now, if you turn with me to chapter 9. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodebar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, like one of the king's sons, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. 
And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Now if you'll turn over with me to uh, chapter 16, the beginning of the chapter. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answers, answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. Now the last part of our story, we'll turn over to chapter 19. Starting at verse 24, I think I have 25 in the bulletin, but starting at verse 24 in chapter 19. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a story all about loyalty, or the lack thereof. And as we look at it, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see David's loyalty. We're going to look at David's loyalty. And then we're going to ask, who is Mephibosheth? Who is Mephibosheth? And then finally, we're going to look at God's loyalty. So the first point, David's loyalty. Chapter 9 starts with a question. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? And we might expect this to be an ominous question. After all, in the first four chapters of the book of Samuel, the most prominent members of Saul's families have all gotten whacked. Not that David was necessarily responsible for all of them. You can read the chapters if you want to see the complicated political machinations that resulted in that. Nevertheless, David now asking, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? We might expect that he wants to finish the job. That would be normal operating procedure for a new king. You have to wipe out the previous dynasty. This removes the danger of rival claimants to the throne, 
And it also has this added bonus that you can take their land and distribute it to your supporters. You know, the distribution of land, that was one of the main levers of royal power in the ancient world. It's kind of how the political system worked. The king gives his supporters land and they provide him with a power base. But that land has to come from somewhere and one of the best places to get it is executing people who are a threat and taking their land. That's often how it works. So removing a heir from, uh, of Saul from the equation would just be a political win-win. That's not what David is going to do. Instead, he says that he wants to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, if you can remember all the way back to February, Ryan preached a sermon on the relationship between David and Jonathan. Uh, maybe you remember the strength of their friendship, that Jonathan stood by David, even uh, when it put his life at risk with his father Saul, even uh, as uh, David was cast out, and even though David's popularity might have threatened his own claim to the throne. Uh, and back in chapter 18, Jonathan made David swear to him, do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Well, the enemies of David have been cut off, and David is committed to keeping his promise. He's committed to paying back the kindness that Jonathan showed him by showing kindness to Mephibosheth. Now, this, the word for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. And it's one of the words that preachers like to say in Hebrew. Uh, and because of my Scottish background, and we like to make this sound, I'm going to insist that we pronounce it the Hebrew way with the fricative at the beginning, chesed. If you have trouble with that, you just have to take the back of your tongue and push it up towards the top of your mouth. Chesed, okay. Um, what does this word chesed mean? I mean? It gets different translations. Sometimes it's translated kindness, but it's especially the sort of kindness that sticks with people through thick and thin. So it often gets called loyalty or faithfulness or steadfast love. Sometimes it's even the kind of kindness that sticks with people when they least deserve it. And then it sometimes gets translated as mercy. I think in this passage, loyalty is the translation that makes the most sense. Uh, David is showing this loyalty that he has to his promise to Jonathan. And of course, this word chesed is often used to describe God's own peculiarly strong loyalty to his people. Uh, and in verse three, 3, David even says that he wants to show the kindness of God. David seeking to embody divine kindness in his own interaction with Mephibosheth. That's a good, lofty theological ideal. We were created in God's image, and part of what that means is that we are meant to love one another in an imitation of the way that God loves us. So David doesn't just give all the land that Saul had owned to Mephibosheth. Land, remember, that's really politically useful. David even gives Mephibosheth a seat at the royal table. Mephibosheth becomes one of the king's sons. All of this is a big reversal of the situation between Saul and David that we saw earlier. Um, Saul's paranoia had led him to seek David's life when David didn't present any real threat to him. 
And, you know, David even used the same words as Mephibosheth back when he was trying to convince Saul that he wasn't a threat. He said, I'm just a dead dog. You don't need to worry about me. But while we might expect David to have the same paranoid attitude towards Mephibosheth, instead he shows kindness to the grandson of his greatest enemy. A very unsoul-like refusal to, to grasp in fear onto his own power. A point of application here. Now, I don't want to overvalorize David's actions. I mean, he refrains from murdering somebody for political reasons, um, and he keeps a promise he's made. That's the right thing to do. I'm not claiming this is the most amazing act of love in the Bible. It's not the highest bar. I mean, I don't know if any of you were planning to go and, and violently purge your political enemies today. If so, don't do it. That's unbiblical. Still, this does seem to me like a triumph of love over the political. And I can't help but think about how we treat each other when we get political these days. I mean, there's a lot of ends justifies the means thinking out there, isn't there? A lot of treating other human beings like enemies who need to be torn down, even if they just disagree with us. So maybe there is something for us to get from this. When you engage politically with others, are you seeking to exemplify the kindness of God? Or are you driven by fear into attacking everyone around you? That's, that's just a thought for us to think about. You know, maybe you can find in your own hearts a little bit of the stuff that has driven so many kings and emperors and general secretaries in the past to bloody purges. Anyway, that's point one. David's kindness. Now point two, who is Mephibosheth? This question becomes especially urgent because Ziba shows up and accuses Mephibosheth of plotting a coup. It can be hard to find good help, can't it, sometimes? Let me give you some context for this. We're jumping ahead in the story a bit. Try not to give too many spoilers, but let me summarize. David's going to do something really, really bad. Won't say what. I think we're going to get there next week. I'll leave it to Ryan. But this event is going to be the pivot in his reign, moving from a period of overall success to a period of turmoil and political violence and a series of coup attempts. Uh, and these later interactions between Ziba and Mephibosheth, they come in the middle of this wider story where the person trying to overthrow David is his own son, a guy named Absalom. When Ziba comes to give David support, David is fleeing because Absalom has taken over Jerusalem and he needs to flee for his life. When he meets Mephibosheth for the second time, Absalom has been defeated and killed and David is returning to Jerusalem. So this all takes place within this coup attempt. We won't be spending uh, much time on the sordid tale of Absalom in this sermon series. You can go and read it for yourself, but I think that's enough context for this sermon. So who is Mephibosheth? Who is Mephibosheth? One thing we hear about Mephibosheth repeatedly is that his legs are impaired due to an accident that he had as a child. So I want to start uh, by saying a little bit about what it must have been like for Mephibosheth to be disabled in his day and age. I've been really helped as this whole book by Jeremy Shipper about Mephibosheth and one of the things he points out is that a problem interpreters of this story often have 
is basically reducing Mephibosheth to his disability. Sometimes that's negative, like this dis- they take this disability as a sign of God-inflicted weakness on the house of Saul. Um, other times, maybe Mephibosheth is presented as a charity case whose only purpose is really to make David look really good by being nice to him. Uh, or sometimes he's put on a pedestal as if just the fact that he is disabled in and of itself proves that he's a, a good person, a brave moral example who exists to inspire us. Shipper argues, though, and I think he's very right, that nothing quite so simple is going on with Mephibosheth in the book of Samuel. And in any case, in a book that has already told us that humans tend to look at the outside of people, but God looks on the hearts, we probably shouldn't try to just make his disability tell us what's going on with his character. Mephibosheth is a human being with a human heart, born in sin, but able to repent just like any of us. So I don't want to reduce Mephibosheth to his disability. But I think understanding his disability does help us understand his situation, his uh, circumstances. And again, this book is really helpful to me. I think Shipper hits the nail on the head by bringing up the issue of the body of the king. You see, kings in the ancient Near East like to present themselves as physically flawless. And that's not to say that a disabled person couldn't be king. In fact, the reasoning behind Ziba's accusation requires us to believe that it's plausible Mephibosheth could become king. That's why the accusation that he's plotting a coup would be possible. But a person with disabilities was not considered by ancient society to measure up to the ideal model of what a king was supposed to be. You know, for example, we know that some of Egypt's pharaohs had physical impairments because we've scan their mummies with medical devices. But those physical impairments never show up in the statues of those same pharaohs. It's, it's airbrushed out for political reasons. Statues tended to portray kings as tall, as muscular, even physically attractive. Since male virility was associated with battle prowess, people wanted to think that their king was a snack. I can send you articles about this. And we see similar ideas right here in the book of Samuel, too. We know that people are obsessed with the physical traits of the king. Saul fits one of these ideals. Remember, Saul was very tall. Outside, he looks like the perfect king, but it turns out that in his heart, he isn't. Even the prophet Samuel falls into this trap. You know, when he's going to... Uh, anoint a son of Jesse, God tells him. He keeps getting drawn towards the different sons on the basis of their appearance. And that's when God tells him, listen, I look at the heart. I don't look at the outside like humans. And I think really importantly, this traitor Absalom, who's trying to take over the kingdom from David, one of the reasons that he is popular is because he is a hot guy with great hair. Don't believe me? Listen, 2 Samuel 14. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. You know, this passage specifically mentions that Absalom is not blemished in any way. That's a Hebrew word that can refer to 
uh, physical impairments. And I think that really contrasts with Mephibosheth's disability. So what does all this mean for Mephibosheth? Well, he's kind of caught in this double bind. You know, he's the heir of Saul, but he doesn't measure up to the society's ideal standard of a king. But on the other hand, it's still plausible enough that he can be accused of plotting a coup. He just, like, can't win either way. But suppose we ask who Mephibosheth is without this mania for physical externals that humans often get caught up in. You know, I found commentators do actually debate whether Mephibosheth or Ziba are in the right here. There are some people who think that Mephibosheth is just lying through his teeth in chapter 19. But I don't think that's really likely. It's the narrator of the story who tells us that Mephibosheth has been in functional mourning since David left, not washing his feet or trimming his beard or washing his clothes until the king comes back in safety. And to me, I think that backs up his words. It certainly would have been quite the long con if all the time Absalom was in control of Jerusalem, he was just faking being sad. So I think Mephibosheth is is innocent, which means that Ziba has slandered him. And possibly, by the way, taken advantage of the fact that it's more difficult for Mephibosheth to travel in order to prevent him from contradicting his story. And look, David has just been totally taken in, leading him to break his loyalty to Mephibosheth and give all of Mephibosheth's land to Ziba. This is a really great injustice. And David makes this decision without even hearing the other side of the story. Remarkably, though, when Mephibosheth shows up, he says he doesn't even care. He sees David as like the angel of God, David is God's chosen representative, so Mephibosheth will submit to any decision that David is going to make. As he sees it, he was doomed to death, but David showed mercy, and he will be eternally grateful. At the end, he even says he doesn't care about the land at all, just as long as the king has returned in safety. David, for his part, just kind of basically tells him to stop talking. Uh, Why speak any more of your affairs? And then he makes, I think, this very dubious decision to give him back only half of his land. That kind of suggests to us that David doesn't really know who to believe. He, uh, after all, I mean, he doesn't have the narrator to tell him Mephibosheth has been in mourning. So David just kind of splits splits the difference and gives half the land to each of them. What what do you think about that decision? What are we supposed to think? I, I don't think we're supposed to like it. I don't like it very much. And you know, one of David's weaknesses is administering justice in this kind of case. In chapter 15, one of the ways that Absalom actually gets people to be loyal to him is he steps in and actually adjudicates these cases of justice that are coming, which presumably means that David is sort of neglecting his role there. In fact, one of the themes of this whole section is that David doesn't even exercise justice when his own family members commit horrendous acts of violence. And I also can't help but see a parallel to the first big judicial challenge that Solomon faces. Maybe you know this story. There are these two women with uh, two babies, but one of them dies in the night. And both of the women claim the live baby is their baby. And this gets brought all the way, goes all the way to the Supreme Court, goes all the way to Solomon. And Solomon comes up with this solution. He says, well, we'll just cut the baby in half, and each of you can have a half. Now, that's a trick. He's not serious, but it's a ruse, you see, because the one woman says, yeah, totally works, that sounds fair to me, but the woman who's actually the mother of the child says, no, no, I'll give up the child, I'd rather the child be unharmed. And then Solomon's like, see, that one's the mother. 
It's actually very similar. You know, you have the same thing, the property getting split in half, and Mephibosheth even reacts like the real mother. He doesn't care about the land. He just cares about David's safety. But David actually does carry out the solution that Solomon only proposes. He, he cuts the land in half and splits it. I, I think that he lacks the discernment that Solomon is going to have for bringing justice. All that this means that David doesn't actually follow through on his desire to express chesed loyalty very well. Actually, Mephibosheth turns out to be the model of faithful loyalty. And here, he's just like his father, Jonathan. He reminds me a lot of Jonathan. Mephibosheth has this deeper loyalty to David, which he's willing to put above even his own property. And the contrast with Absalom, it's just so striking. Here you've got Absalom with the perfect bod who everybody loves. And even after he's betrayed his father, David is still heartbroken for him. And David just doesn't seem to know what he's got with Mephibosheth. You know, his other son, his adopted son, sitting with the king's sons this whole time, who's really a much better son than Absalom ever was. If only David could actually, like, see Mephibosheth for who he is, but he's not able to do that for some reason. I think it's worth thinking a bit about just what fools we humans often are with our focus on externals. And it's probably a good, a good thing for us to hear with our Instagram-soaked eyeballs these days, social media, surrounded as we are all the time by perfect bodies. And you know, of course, that the bodies you see on social media, they're airbrushed into oblivion because even the models don't measure up to the standard of beauty that we have in our society. Um, you know, the books of Samuel tell us that this is a very human way of looking at the world. God doesn't see us that way. And that means that life in God's kingdom is going to have to constantly push against our tendencies. We are going to have to be challenged to see ourselves and see other people as in the image of God, each one invested with royal dignity, no matter how our bodies compare to our culture's expectations. One question we might ask ourselves today is, are we letting externals get in the way of showing kindness to one another? Are we showing God's love to all, regardless of their external appearance or how attractive they are? Also, are we showing the kind of loyalty to one another that Mephibosheth shows, a loyalty that puts other people ahead of our financial gain? You know, Mephibosheth is the one who really shows the way to live which is truly divine in the image of God. He has this loyalty for other humans that puts them above earthly goods. So who is Mephibosheth? He turns out to be the really loyal one, the one that David was trying to be this whole time. But moving on to point three, we also have to ask about God's loyalty. Back in nine, chapter 9, verse 3, David didn't just say he wanted to be kind to Mephibosheth, he wanted to show the kindness of God to Mephibosheth. Now that we got to the end of our story, I, I think we can see that he didn't do that very well. He started out well, but he didn't follow through. He ends up giving half of Mephibosheth's property away to the guy who slandered him. But this is not the end of Mephibosheth's story. This is why I had Josh read that genealogy. Thanks, uh, Josh, for uh, take, taking on a bit of a challenge there. I think you did a, a great job. Um, but, but why did I do that? Well, 
Mephibosheth is the same person as the Meribaal mentioned in verse 40 of that genealogy in Chronicles. We won't get into why there's different names, but they're different names for the same person. Um, and I want us to see that he has a son, Micah. And that son has other sons. We get 10 generations in all. Mephibosheth has a whole host of descendants. And I want you to think about that. You know, among the people of Israel who read these stories and preserved them and passed them down, there were descendants of David and descendants of Saul living together in the people of God. I think that's something we often miss. We think of, you know, Saul and David as just characters in this Bible story we know. But for past readers, they would have had a family connection or probably known somebody who had a family connection to both David and Saul. So why is Chronicles listing all these genealogies? Is it just to give us a hard time, you know, in our Bible reading when we get to Chronicles? No, it's to emphasize God's loyalty, his chesed. You see, unlike David, God doesn't forget Mephibosheth. He blesses Mephibosheth with a place in Israel and a legacy. And this reminds us that the big point isn't just Mephibosheth's loyalty, as inspiring as that is. The big point is God's loyalty. God has a story for Israel that doesn't end with David. It's going to transcend David's own failures and sins. God's story for Israel won't end with the chaos David unleashes on Israel. It won't end with Solomon's idolatry. It won't end with Israel's rebellion, even when that rebellion leads Israel into exile. Even when God's people try their hardest to break God's covenant, even when they don't hold up their end, God will remain faithful. You know, sometimes people call God's chesed his covenant love. That's one of the words you'll, that you'll hear used, and that's, that's an okay term, because God is faithful to his covenant. But I think sometimes it's really his more than covenant love. Because it's God sticking to his people even when they try their hardest to break the covenant. Even when they go beyond all reasonable expectation of forgiveness. It is God's mercy because his forgiving love does not give up on his people. Even when human loyalty fails, God remains loyal. And we can see that loyalty most clearly in the person of Jesus. Because in Christ, God came to a world that rejected him. He was despised by his own creatures, falsely accused, and judicially executed. The rejection of Jesus was a cooperative project of all humanity, Jew and Gentile together. But precisely when humans were at their least loyal, their most treacherous, that is when God's loyalty shone out the most clearly. Because at the cross, Jesus persevered in love and loyalty for us, pouring out his life for our sins. You know, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah tells us that Jesus, the servant, had no beauty that we would desire him. And like Mephibosheth, Jesus' qualifications don't rest on his physical beauty. And at the cross, how much more so, Jesus became an object of disgust, of horror, People turn their faces away from his suffering. Jesus wasn't the world's ideal model of a king. In fact, the title of kingship hung over his cross was a mockery. But the one who we rejected, God has made the cornerstone of his church, 
raising him from the dead and crowning him with honor and glory and might. And it is this loyalty of God which has the last word. This loyalty is the mercy we can trust to forgive us our sins if we confess them. This is the loyalty which will persevere with us through our sin and our sorrow. This is the loyalty that will transform us into the image of Christ and bring us at length to a perfect eternal kingdom. There we will see God in all his beauty and be freed at last from the dominion of external physical judgment. God in his loyalty raised Christ from the dead. How much more will he not also give us all things in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do not look on the externals. We thank you for your love, your loyalty, your faithfulness, your mercy, which is so much deeper than our own fleeting loves, which sometimes do the right thing, sometimes do the wrong thing. You are always with us. In Christ, you are always for us, guiding us, protecting us, saving us to the end. We thank you for that great truth this morning. We pray that you would work it deep into our hearts and transform our lives by it. In Jesus' name, amen. We come to the table of our Lord, to communion, to this central sacrament, ordinance, ritual that has so many different names. One of the names is, of course, the Eucharist.